Interviewing as a technique of gaining information is as old as humankind. Talking to people as a form of scientific inquiry about their experiences is fun, but also a methodological, moral and theoretical challenge. In the past decades, oral history has become a widely used research method in different disciplines. Given that oral history is a technique and a way of constructing histories, this series of podcasts tries to offer an overview of different ways of how to construct the information and how to analyze it in a wider methodological context. This podcast is designed for those who want to use interviewing as a method of collecting empirical material. It consists of eight sections. The first one is discussing oral history developments, basically the historiography. The second one is analyzing the politics of oral history, who are those who are using interviewing for political reasons. The third one is connecting the social and personal level. The fourth one is discussing ethical and legal dimensions. The fifth one is about practicalities, what to do, how to do, what not to do. The next one is discussing questions and questioning. The seventh one is discussing narrativity, as oral history is using narratives and to understand stories. And the last one, the eighth one, is about interpretation, how to analyze oral history, what are the limits and the possibilities. Every podcast is around 20 minutes each. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will find this podcast series useful. This is the third and the last module of the theoretical uh, part of uh, doing oral history. We will be looking at the intersection of social and personal. And also, let me make a personal note here that this is the first time we are having the class in the Hanak room, who was my mentor and, and teacher and whom I had the opportunity to start working at CEU in 91. So let me just uh, acknowledge this important moment that this classroom was named after him. And um, uh, so with, without further ado, I would like to go to the opening quote, which is uh, always the kind of, which leads us into the, uh, the heart of the issue we are discussing, and that is about experience, right? Because oral history is basically collecting experiences. Uh, this is a quote from the reading you have done for today from uh, Joel Scott about experience. Treating the emergence of a new identity as a discursive event is to refuse a separation between experience and language and to insist instead on the productive quality of discourse. Subjects are constituted discursively. Experience is a linguistic event. It doesn't happen outside established meanings, but neither is it confined to a fixed order of meaning. Right? So this is the quote from where I would like to unpack those issues we are uh, facing when we are doing oral histories. Uh, so every interview moment right, is an emergence of a new identity because the speaker is actually performing a certain identity, a certain uh, 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 
certain uh, certain this through certain this uh, discussions through uh, certain uh, identities and this is a discursive event it means that it is not a kind of essential event but it's something which is actually constructed and uh, to refuse a separation between experience and language and to insist instead on the productive quality of the discourse. So the productive quality, it is the discourse which actually produces that kind of identity and the discursive uh, event is constructed through uh, the uh, productive uh, element, namely that it is actually made, it's relational, it is a construction, it is a product. And here comes your responsibility because you are asking, the, you are deciding, you know, you have decided what kind of project you will be doing, what kind of questions you are asking, and what you will be doing with this particular project. So this kind of uh, responsibility is uh, important when you are talking about the constructing this experience. And uh, uh, the subjects are constituted discursively. Experience is a linguistic event. The experience is not something like this pen that you have or you have not, right? The experience is something you are talking about. So this pen becomes a, an experience in a sense when you are, when I would share the story how I actually told this pen in a kind of dramatic moment to have it, right? So that po point onwards, this is not an object but it becomes a part of the story and it becomes a part of the performative discursive element. So this kind of uh, linguistic event happens inside established meanings because you all know that this is a pen and when I'm telling you the story of, uh, uh, of this uh, particular conference when I was stealing this pen, I'm just making this up, then you know what a conference is, right? And it was all bad that I was stealing it because you should have your ownership of that particular pen if you have it, right? So these kind of established meanings help you to, uh, to construct a, a, a linguistic event. And it is not confined to a fixed order of meaning because these meanings are constantly, you know, changing. I probably I will not tell this story to my mother, right, that I was stealing this pen. Then, let's say, she would admire that this is a blue pen because that's a very different discursive event when I'm talking to my mother and I'm talking to a person who is saying, give me a pen, right? So just using this very simple uh, example, uh, the, in, the introduction to the social interaction between the social and, uh, and the personal is how this experience and how this personal is actually uh, constructed. So this is the major point. It is not the subjects who have experience, but it is the subjects who are constituted through experience. So the subjects do not have an experience. So when uh, uh, you are reading all these stories that you know the, or the, inter, the informant is sharing his or her experience, this is not his or her experience. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not taking the agency. I'm not taking the right to tell the story, but I just would like to open up a different space for discussion, namely that how these subjects are constituted through this um, experience. And that kind of conceptualization 
warns us about holding on to experience as an explanation or as a sole evidence about our knowledge. And this sentence will come back when we are talking about analyzing oral histories, because you cannot use oral history as an evidence, right? As simple as that, because this is uh, not a sole evidence because of the contextualization and also because um, uh, it doesn't have a fixed order of meaning, right? So when you are reading uh, simple analysis of oral histories, when they are just quoting certain excerpts from those oral histories, then you see that this is basically using the stories in a very simple, descriptive way. So our task will be to learn how to move beyond simply using these stories as proofs, right? Because they are, I'm not questioning the authenticity of the stories, because every story is authentic. I just would like to move one, you know, several layers below and to look at how these stories are actually constructed. Uh, so just to move away from this danger that to trust stories as personal stories. And uh, uh, the Joel Scott article you have or chapter you have read for today actually you know, uh, talks a lot about this. Uh, the problem lies not in relying on experience, but in relying on experience alone. A refusal to interpret and acceptance of experience, experiential knowledge as self-evident and unmediated leads to a reification of the subject and essentializes identities. The reification of the subject, which means that you are defining the subject through a very thin line as one unit, right? And this is essentializing identities at the same time. So uh, just uh, let me make a point uh, um, then um, uh, if you look, if you remember the, uh, the story about the how oral history became an important political tool, right? So that actually uh, opens up a space for essentialized identities because there were certain political groups who started to collect stories about their past in order to create a certain political legitimation. So here I would like to differentiate between how to use and where to use oral history. So use oral history for documentation or for political legitimization or for political struggle or for academic analysis. And this diversification of using certain stories actually raises a lot of practical and ethical issues we will be discussing in the next class. Uh, and this is all connected to the concept of uh, the subject. And uh, this is the quote from Judith Butler, which is also in the text of um, uh, Joanne Scott, what you have read for today. There is no ontological intact reflexivity to the subject, which is then placed within a cultural context. Subject, cultural context. That cultural context. As it were, it already there is a disarticulated process of the subject's production, one that is concealed by the frame that would situate a ready-made subject in an external web of cultural relations. Excuse me, it sounds more difficult than Heidegger. Um, 
there is a long discussion how difficult to read Judith Butler, but that's why I actually uh, you know, took this quote and projected that we can unpack this particular quote in order to understand a very simple thing. It's very simple. Um, and let me encourage you that you always look be you know, behind this uh, very complicated academic jargon to the meaning. So here about the subject and the cultural context and how this, uh, there is not a ready-made, you know, these are not two separate entities, but they are actually intertwined, they are relational, they are connected to each other. So you, if you look at this uh, subject production, this is not about the subject as such, which is you know, flying in the air without the context, and then there is the cultural context, but they are very strongly connected to each other. And you might be very right saying that this is complicated, but if you look at how, what to do with oral histories, actually these stories are actually uh, there for you to understand and to analyze these particular connections. Uh, how these um, uh, processes of subject production. Let me give you the example I uh, actually also used in the previous uh, podcast, which is the story of this uh, female political journalist who was convicted after 1945 as a, um, uh, for unwomanly activity for, of being a political journalist during the, the, uh, the Second World War, and after 1989, uh, who was actually given an amnesty because as a woman she could not have been produced anything uh, original because she is a woman, so there is no way that she can produce anything. So this is a good example, right? That the subject position is actually coming from and constructed from this external web of cultural relations, right? And the subjects are a part of this. So there is not such a thing as a meaning which is, you know, uh, projected or uh, uh, elevated or you know placed into this particular uh, cultural context, but they are all you know mutually constitutive. So basically, this mutually constitutive element is what we can actually uh, study. So how does all this very complicated uh, 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 theoretical background relate to oral history? Uh, uh, Zelma Leidersdorf um, um, uh, said, and I'm quoting her, as oral historians, we cannot fully know the experience of others, and we are only told that which our narrators see at the moment of telling and what meaning they assign to that. End quote. So it means that you, you are not collecting experiences, right? You are getting these stories that the narrators are deciding to tell you at the moment of the narration, and they are assigning certain meanings to that moment of the narration. So you don't get access to the raw experience, because there is not such a thing as experience, but you are looking at this moment of telling and assigned meaning of that particular uh, moment. Um, so uh, 
this is also a quote, uh, every story deals with that which the culture wants to remember and to forget on the level of individual psychology, the ways people tell about memories and the ways they like to be seen. Stories are also related to us in a form of genres, right? So what are the genres you are actually telling? And our lives are storied lives. Just think about when you are meeting a somebody whom you haven't known, then you start asking about stories. You start initiating stories. I mean, the courting as a kind of important activity. That's also a, a kind of mutual initiation of certain stories to get to know each other, right? And these stories, they have got different genres. And uh, there is the historical, poetical, and legendary narratives, which are usually mixed up in this, um, in this, uh, uh, in this storytelling. Portelli uses this term of personal truth, uh, which might coincide with shared imagination. So the personal truth, what you are actually sharing in these stories, and that it might actually fit to this uh, shared imagination. And that is a contributing to the construction of the Mises around certain individuals. Uh, analyzing oral history material carefully, the speaker's subjectivity and the cross-section of the subjectivity of group or class may emerge. Uh, the cross-section of subjectivity of a group or class may emerge. So the, when you are looking at the material, and we will get back to this point when we are discussing how, what to do with this oral history material, uh, you see that this subjectivity of the narrator, that is always constructed through different kind of axes of social uh, uh, discrimination, and uh, the group or class might emerge as an important factor influencing the narrative position. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, uh, Ralph Samuels, uh, who is the founder of the, one of the founders of the History Workshop uh, Journal, uh, he did a big oral history project. How this oral history project started is that he like to go out to pubs and uh, you know sitting with people and uh, he recognized that there is a particular person in the pub who is quite elderly who is drinking uh, who accepts free drinks from the others and who has got excellent stories so he joined the club who is actually paying free drinks to this individual and uh, from this a beautiful friendship developed and a fabulous book and a very uh, interesting cutting edge um, uh, methodology as far as oral history is concerned. Because this uh, friendship actually brought to a book about the London East End uh, in the 1910s and 1920s, when uh, uh, these um, uh, stories are actually he, he was a pity criminal, he was in jail several times, he divorced, I mean, there were several, uh, he was homeless for a while, so he was really a character, in a sense, an atypical uh, subject of historical investigation. And at that time, London's East End was, you know, mostly an immigrant area, mostly Jewish, mostly a, an era where, you know, you would not go out after dark alone. So this area, uh, the, was basically seen through the eyes of this particular individual uh, who, uh, who shared his story while drinking so much in the pub. 
So, uh, but through these stories, the working class history uh, of the East End was actually you know, shaping up. And also the, uh, how migration influenced uh, the, uh, the life story and the life courses of the um, individuals in, in the East End. So when we are talking about the personal and the individual, you see that you don't have anything else than language. You don't have anything else than the stories. So through those stories, you actually get to know this um, particular point of view, but this point of view is not independent from the particular uh, context. So uh, here is this long quote from Dan Shen, who is uh, speaking about the uh, the past and the, uh, how this past is actually constructed. Be let me quote, because we can represent scenes in our mind when we look back, scenes of the past with different degrees of clarity and fullness in view. With our mind's eye, we can re-see past events and re-hear past sounds. In first-person's retrospective narration, the narrator's process of remembering past events is usually a process of viewing those scenes from his or her present perspective. But the narrator may, in different stretches of the text and with varying frequency, withhold his or her present perspective and instead adopt the point of view she had while experiencing the event in the past. Significantly, the past perception of now exists only in the narrator's memory and can be retrieved only as a function of memory." End quote. So when you are asked, please describe what did you do last Sunday, then you immediately, shh, you see a picture, because that's how our memory works, right? So you have to see a picture, and you start describing what is on the picture. But your position isn't here and now in Monday morning in this gloomy, cold city. And what happened on Sunday, you are describing from this shifting subject position, right? So, and that's why this point is important, that the past perception of now exists only in the narrator's memory and can be retrieved only as a function of memory. So how the past is actually seen by this by uh, by the narrator. So you are constantly and why is this important? Let me bring in the example of the uh, of my interviews with those women who were raped by the Red Army soldiers. Giving a story about rape is not easy, and it's very, very difficult as far as choosing the language and also the whole situation is concerned. But it's even more difficult when you think about the impact of these stories on the individual. So therefore, if you think about this um, uh, quote that the narrate that the, the past perception of now exists only in the narrator's memory and can be retrieved only as a function of memory actually shows how difficult it is for those women who are actually retrieving the stories which happened to them 50 years ago, like now, and they are trying to describe what happened to them back 50 years ago, right? So, and this is how basically memory works in this particular shifting position. So let me 
summarize you know, what is the major point here. What oral historians solely have access to is to the past events, not even its memory, but the representation of the memory of an event. The representation of the memory of the event, how it is actually represented in the stories. And that's what you are analyzing, right? The representation of the event in the past. So you cannot tell what has happened. You cannot remember how somebody is remembering to an event. But you can talk about the event, how this is actually represented in the memory of the particular person. So let's go to the uh, uh, one of the uh, other texts you have read for today, which is the Edna Lomsky Fader article, Life Stories, War Veterans on the Social Distributor, Distribution of Memories. Uh, here is a difference between the personal memory, uh, uh, which is embedded within, designed by, and derives its meaning from a memory field that offers different interpretations of war. And this concept, memory field, I just would like to underline, and we will get back to this, because different oral historians are using different terms for the same phenomenon. Um, yet this memory field is not an open space, and the remembering subject is not free to choose any interpretation he or she wishes. So the memory field is where you are actually taking your toolkit, you are taking your uh, uh, terms, you are taking your understandings to talk about your experience. Again, let me give the, uh, the uh, experience of interviewing uh, uh, women who were raped by the Red Army soldiers. Um, they very often use certain terms, concepts from literature. And that is the characteristic of those uh, stories of uh, uh, traumatized uh, individuals, that using those kind of relatively s uh, safe cultural um, 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 terms or uh, cultural concepts which are helping to create this space of remembrance. Um, the cultural criteria distribute accessibility to different collective memories according to social entitlements. These distributive criteria, this is the term by Edna Lomsky Feder, dictate who is entitled to remember and what is to be remembered, thereby controlling extent of trauma and criticism of personal memory. The distributive criteria, that's the other term which is important when we are talking about the relationship between the social, personal and the, and the uh, uh, and the social, because who has got the right and what kind of power relations are influencing, what kind of um, um, uh, memories are being shared? And this is, again, a very important gendered question. So I wrote an article about communist women not remembering, analyzing uh, uh, communist women's autobiographies after 1945 in Hungary. Uh, those communist women who were tortured, prisoned, and who actually broke with their families to join the communist movement during the Second World War, and who actually wrote the most kitschy and kind of pinkish autobiographies. And they were basically not reflecting on the, 
the discrimination and also the lack of uh, uh, political power they desire to acquire when they join the political movement of the uh, Communist Party. Because the distributive field was basically not offering them any kind of space to remember and to criticize uh, the political power um, um, after 1945. So that's why there was a no space for remembrance. So if you are looking at the non-remembrance as a concept, which I was also developing when I was writing about this monument at the Liberty Square here in Budapest, the non-remembrance is also connected to this distributive criteria, that there is no space to remember this. So, uh, the political field, the memory field, uh, the, uh, the, uh, these are these three levels. Uh, these are really in the in the text is speaking about the three levels of interactions: the literary, the grammatical, and the linguistic interactions, which are actually happening in each and every interview. And uh, uh, this um, uh, uh, actually gives the ideological structure of the interview. This um, is uh, the term by Langelier, who actually said the following, and I quote: "All personal narratives have a." political function in that they produce a certain way of seeing the world which privileges certain interests, stories and meanings over others, regardless of whether or not they contain explicit political content. Telling personal narratives may legitimate dominant meanings or may resist dominant meanings in transformation of meanings. The analysis of the enabling or constraining power of personal experience stories must consider the politics of their concrete and embodied performance rather than the text isolated from context or stories apart from the discourse. This is very much the same what you very legitimately did criticized in the Judith Butler story, namely that there are no innocent stories. There are no stories outside the context. There are no stories without political agenda, right? So every, all personal narratives have, have a political function because every narrative is a decision. What to tell you? Just to go back to my stupid story about the pen, right? It is a decision to tell you that I stole this pen, right? And it has a political agenda showing that, you know, A, pens are not important, you know, I'm cool enough to steal a pen and I mean, so the, every story has an agenda. And when you are asking more important questions than who owns this pen, uh, then you might also encounter with this particular political agenda. Uh, just uh, uh, let me give you this example. When I was interviewing this police officer who was uh, working as an investigator after 1945, obviously he had a very serious political agenda, what to radiate and what kind of stories to share with me in order to make his extremely kind of tainted organization, which is the Hungarian KGB, in a, put into a favorable light. And I think this is a very simple story which explains this particular quote. And it also connects the personal and the social, in a sense that every story has this political, social backing. 
And there is no way that you can analyze a story as it is. So you cannot just throw one story you know, on the paper saying that that's how it has happened, right? Because you cannot really do that. So uh, Langelier was using this concept of political praxis. Greeley was using the concept of political field. Foucault is using the concept of discursive field. Blonsky Feder used the concept memory field. But these are basically the same thing, right? When they are talking about this very important enigma, how to connect the individual and the social, right? So that is the horrible term, interface, right? This is the point that they are actually meeting, these uh, uh, different categories which are explaining why and how certain individuals are telling stories. Uh, because individual memory itself is never independent from larger social forces and discursive practices that are part of a certain culture and tradition. Uh, so let me connect this to the quote where we started, that the subject is actually constructed through these discursive place, places in, in the, dependent on the political field, on the memory field, on the political praxis, and also when you are looking at the subject, the distributive criteria actually gives a reflection on the way how this is uh, constructed. Uh, the strive to master control interpretation and the meaning is very much a constant process, and because the construction and the legitimization of subjectivity is at stake, it is highly a social process, always involving some kind of playing out of relationality and power. So these are the two concepts, right? The relationality and the power, which are actually describing and um, uh, looking at how these uh, power relations are constructed. Uh, tendencies for the future. Uh, Zelma Leidertorf said, I expect the lens of gender to remain focused on oral history, life stories, and memories. Yet we are also becoming aware that a single focus through the lens of gender might no longer satisfy our empirical and theoretical needs. Our challenge will be to determine whether the gender story bears any relation to other explanations for the narratives we listen to, and if so, to redefine that relation. So gender is not you know, the, always the primary signifier. This is one of the signifiers. So a kind of intersectional approach is needed. Um, this is connected to this uh, point um, uh, about how to when you are analyzing oral history carefully, speaker subjectivity and the cross-section of the subjectivity of group or class may emerge. Gender is actually you know, an important category, but it might not be the only category when you are looking at the subject's uh, uh, position. Um, and the last point I would like to make is about the future of uh, how to connect social and individual and personal. And uh, Zelma Leidersdorf uh, uh, spoke about these new scientific discoveries. And I'm sure you have seen, uh, you know, at least posted on the Facebook news feed of your friends that now they are uh, some uh, scientists uh, who are working on uh, brain, 
brain research, they discover the, uh, how trauma, for example, is inherited through uh, the different genes. So uh, that's a quote from Zelma Leidersdorf who said, life stories are not only stories, but also part of memory as studied in neuropsychology. I strongly believe that new insight into the nature of mind and the brain will influence our view. End quote. So this, uh, the neuroscientists are actually uh, looking at how this connection between the personal uh, and, the, and the social can actually be biologized in a sense that some of the uh, uh, traumatic experiences transmitted through genes and that influences the way how memory works. And uh, there is this distinction between the memory narrated and the memory embodied. Because there you are, you can tell stories, you can narrate stories, but there are certain memories which are embodied and you are not narrating. And some of these stories are related to traumatic experiences, like rape, for example. And if you look at the whole literature about the Holocaust remembrance, you see that the concept of post-memory is very strongly related to the concept of embodied memory. So that's the last point where I would like to finish. Namely that, is this really a paradigm change? Is this really a, a paradigm shift? And that might be probably a topic for a, another oral history course.